being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 33 freemasonry and the donardian labyrinth today i'm recording from the texas school book depository at dealey plaza for the 33rd episode of program to chill at least on the free side i wanted to do something special for the fans For all of you, my serial chillers. Now, some people have compared my free episodes to vegetables and my premium episodes to candy or something. So I like to get real weird sometimes for my free listeners every once in a while. And if you like this, you will probably like what I do on Patreon. So check me out there as well. But what could possibly be better for the 33rd episode than an episode about Freemasonry? There are a lot of critics of Freemasonry, but I don't know anyone better suited to the task than James Shelby Downard, who was born in 1913 and who died in 1998. Now, from what I can tell, the public became aware of Downard, and when I say the public, I mean like more than maybe like a small fringe to a slightly larger fringe, but... People became more aware of Downard when Adam Parfrey published a book called Apocalypse Culture in 1988. Apocalypse Culture was a compilation of essays and writings by Adam Parfrey and a whole bunch of other people, ranging from Boyd Rice, Adolf Hitler, Hakim Bey, John Zerzan, Charles Fort, an essay about Wilhelm Reich, The Red Brigades, and essays about terrorism, racism, pedophilia, necrophilia, drug use, and on and on. It was one of the more quintessential edgelord texts by the ur-edgelord himself, Adam Parfrey, right? And the essay that Downard wrote, and it appeared in the first edition, it had an introduction by a Michael A. Hoffman II. Now, I am not breezing past Hoffman Trust me, we will definitely return to him. But if you do the math, James Shelby Downard was already 75 years old by the time the public first started paying attention to him. And again, I mean the small readership of the first edition of Apocalypse Culture. I mean, relative to the entire U.S. public, this is, you know, a drop in the bucket. But Apocalypse Culture was influential, so... A few more of Downard's essays appeared in later books put out by Parfrey's publishing company, Feral House. It's actually interesting because I'm not sure why, but in the second edition of Apocalypse Culture, that essay was swapped out with a different one. Pretty interesting. And there was later an Apocalypse Culture too, and so on. There was even a mystique about James Shelby Downard, like, oh, he's reclusive. And they even tried to make like a, like an aura around him, like, oh, he always stayed strapped. He was always paranoid, traveling across the country, trying to stay one step ahead of the Masonic assassins. There was definitely like a mythos created about him, right? Now, by the end of his life, Downard had written several essays and about half of an autobiography. Nevertheless, he's probably one of the most influential conspiracy theorists of all time. An absolute legend in some ways. 
he's possibly one of the most influential to having written the least. Why is Downard so influential? I figure that I will go through some of the arguments that James Shelby Downard makes in his famous essay, King Kill 33. <laughs> then we can crack into his autobiography. Now, mind you, King Kill 33 is sort of hard to get a hold of, but it is quite short and it is online, so if any of this appeals to you, I would recommend just reading the essay. I found it was so short that it was almost hard to cover without just reading it, like, start to finish, which I didn't want to do, so keep that in mind. Hoffman's essay introducing King Kill 33 is called Alchemical Conspiracy and the Death of the West. In the essay, Hoffman discusses alchemy and how, in his words, the Trinity site of the first nuclear explosion achieved the first three ultimate goals of the alchemist of lore. Creation and destruction of primordial matter. In Hoffman and Downard's private cosmology, the first nuclear test the assassination of JFK, and the moon landing were all alchemical operations. By way of proof, and as part of like the Hoffman and Downardian epistemology, there are many, many explorations of names of places and things. Onomatology, in other words. And the Trinity test site, which was the site of the first nuclear explosion, 
It is at the head of the old Mexican trail, the Jornada del Muerto, or the Journey of the Dead. And they take that to be very significant, right? Hoffman and Downard both also, as far as I can tell, pioneered the innovation of looking at ley lines as magical signifiers. I'm sure that technically people did it before, but I think this might be one of the first main times that conspiracy theory culture was doing this. Keep that in mind. And I believe they were the first to discuss the high strangeness all along the 33rd parallel. They called out the fact that the Trinity Test Site and Dealey Plaza were both on the 33rd parallel. Other people later have built on this idea and pointed out that so are Roswell and Disneyland. Here is the main thesis statement that Hoffman provides, such as it is, and I quote, If the ceremonies like the old Roman Catholic High Mass, the pageants of the European kings, the Incas and the Aztecs, and even the Black Mass, all imprint percipients when occurring in specially sited Gothic cathedrals or blood-smoking pyramids. How much exponentially more potent are gigantic rituals played out upon the enormous body of the earth herself, linked by electronic means to a whole world, and swathed in onomatology keyed into the subcellars of our chthonic subconscious." Unquote. To get into King Kill 33 rather than the introduction, the whole theory around King Kill 33 relies on knowing what the different Freemasonry rites are all about, and then discerning a nefarious esoteric meaning beyond their mostly benign exoteric meaning, right? This can be kind of challenging if you don't know what the Freemasonry rites are. The essay walks you through them, though it also imbues them with only negative interpretations, which of course Freemasons themselves would mostly not agree with, right? I'm not going to go through all of it, but keep that in mind. Now Downard says, quote, Masonic betrayal of the common man involves archetypes of fertility and death symbolism seemingly motivated to bring about syncretism in opposing principles in order to green Israel, rebuild the Temple of Solomon, and establish a one-world government." Unquote. The essay explains the concept of scapegoats, which were in the past, like ancient Israel past, scapegoats were ritual offerings for the sins of the public. The point is that the scapegoat was innocent. Downard took it a step further and talks about the pharmakos, which was the ancient Greek tradition of human sacrifice, supposedly based on the same premise. The essay says, When the ancients saw a scapegoat, they could at least recognize him for what he was, a pharmakos, a human sacrifice. When modern man sees one, he does not or refuses to recognize him for what he is. Instead, he looks for scientific explanations to explain away the obvious. Now, if Downard had a thesis statement for King Kill 33, it would probably be the following passage. The eternal pagan psychodrama is escalated under these modern conditions precisely because sorcery is not what 20th century man can accept as real. Thus, the killing of the king right in November 1963, is alternately diagnosed as a conflict between anti-Castro reactionaries and the forces of liberalism, big business and bankers, this or that wing of the intelligence community, and so on. 
Needless to say, each of these groups has a place in the symbolism having to do with the Kennedy assassination. The ultimate purpose of the assassination was not political or economic, but sorcerous. For the control of the dreaming mind and the marshalling of its forces is the omnipotent force in this entire scenario of lies, cruelty, and degradation. Something died in the American people on November 22, 1963. Call it idealism, innocence, or the quest for moral excellence. It is the transformation of human beings which is the authentic reason and motive for the Kennedy murder. And until so-called conspiracy theorists can accept this very real element, they will be reduced to so many eccentrics, amusing a tiny remnant of dilettantes and hobbyists. Unquote. My words here, dear listeners, I'm not sure I ever mentioned, but King Kill 33 essentially argues that the assassination of JFK was a Freemasonic ritual. The quote basically says that, but in case, you know, he didn't catch it, that is the gist of this whole essay. And while I would agree that the assassination was certainly a psychodrama that played out in the minds of everyone in the entire country and even the world, and I do think that something died in the American people on that day, like I agree with that. Downard goes through some evidence that the assassination was intentionally contrived as a Masonic ritual. I will list several of his, you know, pieces of evidence. Dealey Plaza used to have a Masonic temple. The CIA station in New Orleans, which of course, as we know, was where the assassination was planned, let's be honest, that CIA station was in an old Masonic temple. In Masonic ritual, assassins are said to come in threes, just like the hobos, the three hobos of JFK assassination lore. Then, Downard says Kennedy is Gaelic for Cianadiac, which he says means ugly or wounded head. By the way, not to be a fact checker here, but that is not at all a standard interpretation of what Cianadiac means, just to take note. Now there's a pretty funny passage about Lee Harvey Oswald, where James Shelby Downard says, At the Oswald grave stands a small tree. There exists an old belief that a tree that grows at or on a grave is embodied with the spirit force of the person buried at that site, and that a twig or branch taken from such a tree has magical powers. I suggest that Lee Harvey Oswald's mother should gently remove a twig from the tree at her son's grave, and then at every opportunity touch FBI agents, CIA operatives, policemen, etc. with that same twig. Such a procedure couldn't help but be more efficacious in bringing the murderers of JFK to justice than the Warren Commission was." Unquote. Which, I mean, that's both technically true and hilarious. Downard wrote, JFK, the one and only Catholic president of the United States, was a human scapegoat, a pharmacos. Pharmacos, or pharmacos, can mean enchantment with drugs and sorcery, or beaten, crippled, and immolated. In alchemy, the killing of the king was symbolized by a crucified snake on a Tao cross, a variant of the crucifixion of Jesus, unquote. Somehow, James Shelby Downard takes the Kennedy as Christ 
idea of JFK and the unspeakable and manages to top it. Though, of course, I think it was written before, but you know what I mean. Now, speaking of the cover-up, Downard wrote, Freemason LBJ appointed Freemason Earl Warren to investigate the death of the Catholic Kennedy. Freemason and member of the 33rd degree, Gerald Ford, was instrumental in suppressing what little evidence of a conspiratorial nature reached the commission. Responsible for supplying information to the commission was Freemason and member of the 33rd degree, J. Edgar Hoover, former CIA director and Freemason Alan Dulles, was responsible for most of the agency's data supplied to the panel." And from what I could tell, I believe that's all correct. Like, most of them were Freemasons. Whether or not you think that's significant is a different question. But I would say this is one of the few actually valid arguments for there being a real non-schizophrenic argument for a Masonic element in the assassination, right? Downard begs the question, is it paranoid to be suspicious of the findings of the panel on these grounds? Would it be paranoid to suspect a panel of Nazis appointed to investigate the death of a Jew, or to suspect a commission of Klansmen appointed to investigate the death of a Negro? Unquote. Which I think dramatically overstates the extent to which the Kennedy family was on the outs with the wasps that run the country, though yet again I suppose I have to r- remind myself that Of course, Kennedy was killed after all, so maybe. Downard points out, Representative Hale Boggs, the only Catholic on the commission, had first agreed with the findings, and when he later began to seriously question them, he was accidentally killed in a plane crash. Now, the session of Congress after Boggs died, get this, it was the 93rd session of Congress. My discovery, not Downard's because I was fact-checking him. Uh, I mean, I assumed that that was true, that he died in a plane crash, but 93rd session of Congress. See, I can play the game too. I can also give myself apophenia. Just saying. Now, to get to wrapping up on King Kill 33, Downard said, This is how they see us, as profane, as Cowans, which is to say, outsiders. Unclean and too perverted to look upon their hollow truths. Yes, murder sexual atrocities, mind control, attacks against the people of the United States. All of these things are so elevated, so lofty, and so holy as to be beyond the view of mere humans." One final piece of evidence which I find fascinating is that Downard points out that Jacob Rubinstein changed his name to Jack Ruby. Downard wrote, Ruby comes from Rubis, Rubi, Rubinus, the same as Rubric which referred to laws. Rubies are associated with the breastplate of judgment by the high priests of Jewish sorcery. The Urim and Thummim, ladies and gentlemen. I posted on that recently on Twitter. Downard continues, The breastplate would have twelve stones with each representing a tribe of Israel. The ruby was said to be the one for the tribe of Judah. Jack ruby was a term used by pawnbrokers to indicate a fake ruby. Rubies can also symbolize blood, suffering, and death." To wrap it up, Downard argued that only the repetition of information presented in conjunction with knowledge of this mechanism of making manifest all that is hidden, he capitalizes, making manifest all that is hidden, that this provides the sort of boldness and will which can demonstrate that we are aware of all the enemies, 
all the opponents, all the tricks and gadgetry, and that we are still not dissuaded, that we work for the truth for the sake of the truth. Let the rest take upon themselves and their children the consequences of their actions, unquote. That making manifest all that is hidden, that would be developed later by Michael A. Hoffman II in his Revelation of the Method and his Twilight Language Theories. Prison bar. 
when I do research for this show, like, it's not really a mystery how I do it, right? Like, I try to read a certain number of books for an episode. Like, I try to read maybe a certain number of books for an episode, depending on what it is. I look at relevant articles, I maybe try to cross-reference a few books and so on, check some newspapers. Like, it's not a mystery how to do it, right? The Jimmy Fallon Gong value add, so to speak, is that maybe I already have a lot of the books, maybe I've already read a lot of them, I know where and how to get them, and so doing it doesn't always take a lot of time, given that I've already, you know, laid the groundwork, so to speak, right? So, when there is a mercurial, weird, mysterious person in a story who sort of baffles me, and I go out and I see that they have an autobiography. Why, for me, the natural thing is to go out and get the autobiography. And whether I read it or skim it or what have you, right, like, either way, like, nine times out of ten, I'm gonna get the autobiography. Which is what I did with James Shelby Downard. And, mind you, this autobiography... It was published by Farrell House in 2006, which was eight years after after Downard's death. And like, a lot of people throw around the term, walked away with more questions than answers, but like, that was literally true for me. Like, I read James Shelby Downard's autobiography, The Carnivals of Life and Death, My Profane Youth, 1913-1935. to this only covers the first 22 years of his life. Which, of course, interesting choice of numbers there, my dude. Like, applying the Downardian mindset to himself, that's clearly on purpose, right? I would say that in reading this autobiography, my reaction was pretty much identical to Professor Richard B. Spence's. He wrote, I'll confess that Carnivals was probably the only book that I've ever actually thrown against the wall out of sheer disgust that anyone would expect me to swallow such a pile of horseshit, yet I always picked it up. Completely agree. It is wild horseshit. <laughs> but, like, I'm not going to go through his autobiography, because I would call it quasi-schizophrenic, but in my humble opinion, it is probably more full of actual bullshitting, as in he's actually bullshitting you or me, not just straight lying and not just crazy person ranting. I'll give you a brief overview, though. I think that people, mostly the clan or Freemasons, try to kill young James Shelby Downard in probably literally every other chapter. Like, by his own telling, Downard kills several people, like, between the ages of, like, 5 to 22 years old. He talks about circumcising himself. He talks about his mother being involved with a German purchasing agent during World War I. He talks about being sent to Jekyll Island when financiers were planning the Federal Reserve. And the way it's written is kind of unclear, but he more or less states that while visiting the financiers at Jekyll Island, he was given intentional amnesia to cover up what happened to him. But he sort of implies that it was like child abuse. But then he leaves the island with mysterious million-dollar gold certificates. And for the rest of the story, those certificates help him gain access to various powerful people. The purchasing agent thing, of course, that sends my mind racing, because, of course, that's something I've noticed, that purchasing is, like, 
spy stuff, basically. Downard talks about his family traveling all over the United States, then going to Haiti, Nassau, they eventually resettled in Oklahoma, where Downard says he was literally crucified by the Ku Klux Klan. Like, nailed to a cross. Downard says that he freed a white slave, which is to say, like a prostitute, right? He basically has quasi-magical powers to work with and communicate with animals. He gets in more than one shootout, and then, according to the autobiography, he got involved with a Arthur Rochford Manby of Taos, New Mexico. Manby had a private secret service, like in real life I'm talking about. He had a basically like an organized crime ring out in New Mexico that in real life ties to the mysterious airships that people kept seeing and supposedly ties to the whole breakaway civilization lore that I am undecided about. Right. There is a whole subplot with the million dollar gold certificates and his family seemingly involved in counterfeiting. There are more than one attempts to ritually murder James Shelby Downard. All like according to his words, right? And yet, Downard makes multiple reference to both dentists and tobacco exporters as spies, which Lord knows that is an ongoing theme of Program to Chill, along with the weirdness around numismatics, which also comes up. In the autobiography, Downard finds a tomb with books that already have his name written on them. He also finds something that he calls a Dayton Witch, which is speculated to be a kind of cipher machine. He's not clear about what it is, but I think in the context that's what it would have to be. Then he says he wrote to Herbert Osborne Yardley, who was of the Black Chamber. The Black Chamber was one of the predecessors to the National Security Agency, which existed. Like, that's real. The Black Chamber was real. I talked about it, like, along in one of my early episodes. Herbert Osborne Yardley, of course, is real. Various hijinks ensue with the proto-NSA. Downard says that he approached J.P. Morgan with a gold certificate and used it as leverage to see Morgan's personal library where he had books of magic. Downard mentions other ties to a different predecessor of the National Security Agency. Then he says he met Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and discussed the gold certificates, the date in which, and a crystal skull. According to the autobiography, FDR made him a federal investigator, though it is not at all clear what agency he was actually working for. There's a discussion of Procter and Gamble's occult significance and using bones in their pottery. Downard says that his dad was in the Illuminati. He says that FDR was in the Illuminati. He meets and talks with Bernard Baruch of FDR's brain trust. Then he goes to Cuba to do some spying. Supposedly, he meets with Bautista, gets abducted, and then wakes up at Walter Reed with an implant in his head. Then he works with Wild Bill Donovan's OSS group prior to World War II, which was funded by the DuPont family. Again, this is, you know, a gray zone right, whether this is true or not. Then he goes to Asheville, where he says he found more Dayton Witch devices, and the book finishes in Memphis with more Masonic spookiness. Like, do you see what I mean? There's just enough 
real stuff or talk about real, very interesting spy things to drive you insane, yet not really enough to actually do anything with it. Like, it's almost as if the book is written to drive people like me crazy, right? There are a lot of very real things that Downer talks about in his, like, I guess I would call it, like, his satanic Freemason Tintin type adventures. He mentions his father's patents, which really do exist. Like, I looked them up. It's crazy. And it's very jarring to read about real things that I have read about in the books of, like, real history about, like, the National Security Agency. And yet, like, this is almost certainly bullshit, right? There's a lot of early pre-CIA stuff with William Stevenson and William Donovan, but none of it is what I would call useful or reliable, you know? Like, there's ties to breakaway civilization stuff and high weirdness, but, again, none of it is what I would call, like, useful for doing more deeper research. It's, like, designed to be catnip or something. Slob, you hardly knew his name. Your mind is deranged. 
So if we go to actual history and try to substantiate or disprove any part of this autobiography, we see that Downard's father was in fact a successful writer and businessman. His father owned a newspaper in Ohio, and later on he owned an asphalt mining and pavement business in Oklahoma. You can find reference to him and his family in searching newspapers. In fact, a different local newspaper in Lima, Ohio, I say different than the one that his family owned, reported that Downard's father was giving public speeches on philosophy. Later, he had a public debate with a reverend on the question, Has England's foreign policy advanced civilization? With Downard's father arguing that it had not. Which, like, my man, right there. Proto-LaRouche shit right there. I love it. Another news story from a different local newspaper said in 1895, Downard's father delivered a paper, like a paper he wrote, to the local philosophical society on the theme of occult philosophy, with the aim to, quote, totally explode, unquote, theosophist and kindred beliefs. Now, who might this have antagonized? Like, imagine that, 1895, already talking about both occult philosophy and going hard against theosophy. The idea that James Shelby Downard's family could have been targeted by very weird enemies is entirely possible, if bizarre. Then, when James Shelby Downard mentions his family going to New Mexico in order to fight Arthur Rochford Manby, Manby was a real person. He was a robber baron who did seem to have run his own secret society. He insisted that it was an off-the-books intelligence operation with the sanction of the U.S. government, though the U.S. government does not seem to have agreed. Manby was involved in all sorts of crimes, and he supposedly stayed in contact with mysterious airships. Like I mentioned, most breakaway civilization literature, or a lot of it, mentions Manby. Like, this is true to a point. There's no, like, evidence that his family was actually involved, but he's talking about real stuff, right? Now, if you'll remember the Dayton Witch Cipher Machine, Professor Richard B. Spence wrote, In that regard, it's worth noting that just outside nearby Dayton, Ohio, was Wilbur Wright Field, later part of today's massive Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Since 1918, Wright has been the base of the Army's Air Services Experimental Engineering Program, and in 1931, it housed the Air Corps' Materiel Division. Could the Dayton Witch have had some connection to this? Like, we can do this all day. Downard was writing about real things, but his memoir was patently false, at least in parts. Like, he literally says that, like, as a five-year-old, he, like, killed four or five guys. Like, there's no way that his memoir is true, right? The, the trouble is that there is not a lot of information about James Shelby Downard otherwise. He appears to have eschewed any limelight or notoriety until, like, you know, right around 1988, when Apocalypse Culture came out. So there was definitely a real person named James Shelby Downard. People have speculated that he was not really responsible for his small, confounding body of work. I found this quote from an internet forum. Downard, or whomever used that name, was mesmerizing. 
At its best, the prose reads like if William S. Burroughs wrote The Golden Bough. I just have to wonder who really wrote the works of James Shelby Downard. Unquote. The thing is, we don't really need to speculate. We know who was advancing Downard's ideas. It was Adam Parfrey, Bill Grimstad, and Michael Anthony Hoffman II, the three of whom had been in contact with him for years. But it's not at all clear how or why. But it would be fruitful to discuss their relationship with him. So prior to Apocalypse Culture coming out in 1988, Jim Brandon, also known as Bill Grimstad, he wrote about Downard's theory in his influential and kind of hard to find book, Weird America. That book came out in 1978. Hoffman and Grimstad were sending people cassette tapes known as the Serious Rising Tapes. These tapes advanced the following theories, that there's a secret society in America, that the killing of the king ritual ties in with the Trinity nuclear explosion as an alchemical ritual, that it ties in with the moon landing, and that all of this is heading towards a great something, that that something has to do with Sirius, sometimes linked to Osiris and Isis, and to Saturn. They talk about the notion of a secret sun, or like a power behind the sun, almost like, perhaps, maybe, say, a black star. This thing is supposed to link to the Babylon working, to Jack Parsons, and on and on, right? Now, you can see James Shelby Downard's synchromystic theories as upstream of where a lot of high strangeness and far-out conspiracy theories have gone. Like, even, say, David Lynch's cosmology, including that critically acclaimed Twin Peaks Season 3 Episode 8, for instance, and the Hellier TV show, for instance, and so on and so on. So, in Adam Gorightly's book on Downard, he wrote, Some cynics have gone so far as to suggest that Downard never actually existed, that he was the group creation of Michael Hoffman, William Grimstad, and Adam Parfrey. Unquote. For what it's worth, I couldn't actually find anyone advancing that theory. Like, everyone knew that, like, there are pictures of this guy. Like, no one said that he didn't literally exist, right? But the thing is, setting aside the question that he wasn't literally a real person, which no one actually seems to argue, and irrespective of whether Downard held, held these views or not, more likely than not, he probably did, considering his father's beefs with the theosophists and interest in occult philosophy. Downard is still held up as the mysterious center of this constellation of dark secrets. So, who are Michael A. Hoffman II, William Grimstad, and Adam Parfrey? I think that going through each of them one by one will probably take us right up to the truth of James Shelby Downard. So Michael A. Hoffman II is probably best known for writing the book Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, which came out in 1992. But he's probably written about four or so books before and around four or so books after, and those eight or so books all pretty much fixate on the Jews. Hoffman has been accused of anti-Semitism, which... Like, I think we all have enough nuance to know that not everyone accused of anti-Semitism is actually anti-Semitic, right? But I would say it's probably true here. <laughs> um, 
because, for instance, Michael A. Hoffman II worked with Tom Metzger, Willis Carto, David Irving, Ernst Zundel, and Herman Otten, for instance. And we have great quotes like this from Hoffman saying, There is no material scientific proof for the existence of Nazi homicidal gas chambers. There are no autopsies available from any source showing that even one Jew died as a result of Zyklon B poisoning among the millions who are alleged to have been killed in this manner. Unquote. I don't think it's always fair to write off an entire person's body of work based off of one bad take, but when it's Holocaust denial, that's probably okay to do. Because I would say that this either points to a massively flawed epistemology, or, you know, maybe Hoffman's just a Nazi which I suppose is its own form of flawed epistemology, right? But whether he believed it or not, it doesn't matter. He's denying the Holocaust. The, the dude's a Nazi. And as if all of that weren't enough, Hoffman has been on Alex Jones' show. And Alex Jones, of course, has family in the CIA. If you don't know by now, Alex Jones is running psychological operations. I'm not saying everyone who's ever... Ben on Alex Jones is, you know, an op, but it's far more likely than not, right? As a rule of thumb, if you've been on Alex Jones' show, it's, it's not a good sign. This is a death battle, folks. There's never been more dangerous times. This isn't me telling you they're going to do this ten years ago. It's here. So I get wound up. I mean, I am in a fighting mood. I can't help it. I just start getting in their face and ready to fight. I'm awake. I'm watching the craziest mind control, mass Stockholm syndrome I've ever seen. I'm watching our country totally dismantled by design by people that hate us. The devil only knows how to con people and manipulate people because he is a magician. He is a deceiver. He is a fraud. He is a lie. He is not one, one trillion what the Creator is. To hell with the devil! Straight to the pit with Satan! Down with Satan in the name of Jesus Christ! Get behind me, Satan! Down with the devil! Down with the fraud! Get out of the road! Get behind me! We have to get past the devil who stands at the gate to Valhalla! Get behind me, Satan! Out of the way! Humanity's these people. I know I'm stronger. I know I've got more will than they do. I'll tear them apart. And they know it. That's why they're scared of us. And they know we're rising. They know we're waking up. They want to dumb us down, get us on our knees, and have their way with us when they think nothing can stop them. Well, if they want to take us down, they're going to get a fight. Let's talk about Jim Brandon, a.k.a. William Grimstad. Who's William Grimstad? Well, he's a person who used a fictional identity, Jim Brandon, to write the seminal 14 text Weird America in 1978. I mentioned that earlier. Under this pen name, he also wrote The Rebirth of Pan in 1983. After 1983, he appears to have stopped using the Jim Brandon pen name. So, 
Weird America is a state-by-state compendium of weird 14 phenomenon. It's not really objectionable from what I looked at, and it's kind of interesting if you're interested in Fortiana, I guess, but the rebirth of Pan postulates that there is an existence of an earth spirit, and one of the prominent incarnations or representations of this earth spirit is the Greek-slash-Roman god Pan which is certainly an interesting idea to advance. Now here's the fun part. As found by the Anti-Defamation League, William Grimstad had to register with the U.S. State Department, which, like, we have the documents for this. Grimstad registered with the U.S. State Department as an agent of Saudi Arabia in 1977. To that end, he wrote a book for the Saudis called Anti-Zion, and the Saudis paid him $20,000, which today would be something like 90000 The book was published by Noontide Press, which was run by Willis Carto of the Liberty Lobby. Now, the book is dedicated to the late King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, described in the beginning of the book as a distinguished statesman and humanitarian who in this new dark age never lost sight of the hidden causes of world upheaval, unquote. The hidden causes, of course, being the Jews. Among other things, Grimstad edited the magazine White Power for the American Nazi Party. He also wrote The Six Million Reconsidered, which was a work of outright Holocaust denial. Grimstad also had ties to David Duke, like, and on and on, right? But, 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 here is the fun part. When and how did Grimstad get introduced into the counterculture? Why, that would be through Robert Anton Wilson, the old trickster himself, who allegedly introduced Grimstad to the broader counterculture. He also gives Grimstad a very early shout-out in his book, Cosmic Trigger, Volume 1, which came out in 1977. In it, Robert Anton Wilson said, Mr. Grimstad sent me a tape entitled Serious Rising, in which he and another conspiracy buff named Downard set forth the most absurd, most incredible, most ridiculous Illuminati theory of them all. The only trouble is that, after the weird data we have already surveyed, the Grimstad-Downard theory may not sound totally unbelievable to us. According to Serious Rising, the Illuminati are preparing Earth in an occult manner for extraterrestrial contact part of the magical preparation which only illuminated ones can understand, unquote. So, if you're keeping track at home, dear listener, we are on two for two for pioneers of synchromysticism being Nazis. Let's check out Adam Parfrey. Now, I've been meaning to talk about Adam Parfrey for a long time. I would still maybe like to do an even deeper dive one day, perhaps. Let's go through what we know of his life and career. His dad was an actor, his mom was Jewish, which is notable for reasons that will become clear soon, right? Parfrey went to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and UCLA in the 1970s, which is notable because it was such a vector of high strangeness at that time, right? Parfrey dropped out and moved to San Francisco, again, a real weirdo central. He started his first attempts at publishing there in San Francisco, and in 1983, you know, after some time, he wrote and performed a play called The Wickedest Man in the World, about Gilles de Rais, 
one of Joan of Arc's friends, said to be a 15th century serial killer of children. Like, he was a real guy, he was Joan of Arc's friend, and from the historical record we have, he was put on trial, convicted, and killed for his crimes of basically just killing children. I highly recommend the Subliminal Jihad episode on Gilles de Ray. It's really good. And for Parfrey to pick of all things that topic and then perform it, obviously it shows his ongoing lifelong obsession with sick and diseased things, which, you know, is not in, you know, I'm, I'm refraining from judging here, right? But let's keep going. Parfrey kept on in publishing. He launched Amok Press. And guess what was the first thing they published? The 1929 novel Michael, written by none other than Joseph Goebbels. Then they published the aforementioned Apocalypse Culture in 1988. Then they published the fascinating book You Can't Win by Jack Black, which is like, it's like about this hobo and like criminal who was a burglar and he was a yeg, which is like a safe cracker. And I think he's like, an early heroin addict. The book came out in 1926, but like, it's really interesting. It's really something. They published the memoirs of Boxcar Bertha and Nicholas Schreck's book, The Manson Files, which I would call a decidedly sympathetic portrait of Charles Manson written by a crypto-Nazi, or, you know, maybe even just, you could say, outright Nazi Satanist. In 1989, Parfrey launched Feral House, which is a very, very interesting publishing company. I don't know if I've made it clear to my listeners, but certainly on Twitter, I've made it clear that I am very interested in publishing companies. I've looked at, you know, Trinday, Verso Press, and Feral House is one of the weirdest. They've published a ton of books, and I've read a lot of their books, but they are incredibly suspect. They've published the anarcho-primitivist John Zerzan. They published the head of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey. They published books by, by Michael Moynihan, who now it's pretty clear that he's super racist, though it was not clear at the time, I guess. They've published Boyd Rice, who is a satanic fascist, who is friends with both Marilyn Manson and the Nazi James Mason. Feral House has published a book on the processed church of the final judgment. Parfrey also published Peter Sotos, who I'll just say makes child pornography. In 2005, Parfrey co-founded a company called Process Media. You know, like the processed church. Cool. Parfrey reminds me of Eric Jan Hannesen, who also published both magical, prurient, and salacious, and Nazi content. The main difference between the two being that, you know, Parfrey died of natural causes and Hannesen was murdered by the Nazis, right? So let's see, how, how does that quote go? Some cynics have gone so far as to suggest that Downard never actually existed, that he was a group creation of Michael Hoffman, William Grimstad, and Adam Parfrey. So here we have Michael A. Hoffman II, a rabid anti-Semite, pushing and popularizing James Shelby Downard and his ideas. We have William Grimstad, a literal neo-Nazi and Saudi agent, pushing and popularizing James Shelby Downard. We have Adam Parfrey, a Jew who nonetheless publishes Nazis, Satanists, and pedophiles, pushing and popularizing James Shelby Downard. 
So there's there's nothing in James Shelby Downard's work to point directly to anti-Semitism and Nazism per se. I think there's hints of it, but that's a different question. But the three people most responsible for popularizing James Shelby Downard to the world were all either rabid anti-Semites and or Nazis. Now, what is it about synchromysticism that is so attractive to Nazis? In fact, it might be less that synchromysticism is attractive to Nazis and perhaps more like Nazis invented synchromysticism. Like, it's more complicated than just entryism. It's like how people keep being astonished to find out that there's a dark side to the New Age movement and to hippies. But like, no, it's built in and by design. To be clear, James Shelby Downard is not the only source for what is now called synchromysticism. There's also influences from Jung and from Chaos Magic and I'm sure several other sources as well. But the Hoffman, Grimstad, Parfrey, Wilson, Downard angle isn't even the only vector for fascism. As synchromysticism was gaining steam and popularity, one of the crucial essays solidifying the concept was an essay called The Cryptic Cosmology of Synchromysticism, and it was written by a guy named Jake Kotze, and it was pushed by a certain website called Red Ice. Maybe you've heard of it. So, I'll just say it. Regardless of whether James Shelby Downard believed or wrote what he said he did, his ideas were propped up by this incredibly suspect clique of people. We know, we know that at a bare minimum, Hoffman was cleaning up and organizing Downard's writings. I would argue that there's perhaps more evidence that, uh, even more creativity went into it than that. At the end of the day, I'm less interested, I'm less interested in figuring out exactly how much of what Downard wrote was actually him or not. You know what I'm saying? I don't think we can know for one thing, but for another. Like, we know that it was something of a team process, right? And then we have even more evidence with what I'm about to say. So, James Shelby Downer died in 1998, but his autobiography, mind you, the first part, quote-unquote, was published in 2006. Now, supposedly, William Grimstad told Adam Go Rightly in 2015 that he had come in possession of part two of Downard's biography. Now, that book hasn't come out yet, so presumably they're still working on it. I've seen posts to the effect that they are working on typing it up, but, I mean, unless there's a degree of creative writing involved, I don't think it would take over five years to get that out, right? Like, I'm not going to die on this hill, but I have some very healthy doubts about the official story of Downard's works, and I have absolutely no incentive to believe Grimstad and Hoffman, right? I'm not accusing Adam Go Rightly of anything, but I deeply doubt that James Shelby Downard wrote a second half to his autobiography and that it's been sitting around somewhere. If and when it comes out, you know, we'll see. We'll see if it even ever comes out, but I have my doubts. At the end of the day, though, what's more useful? To know that JFK was killed by the military-industrial complex or that it might have been done as a magic ritual by Freemasons? Now, at its best, King Kill 33 is masturbatory Discordian fuckery. And at its worst, 
it's a psychological operation to distract people from the real implication of the real events at Dealey Plaza. Synchromysticism, while probably real to a certain extent, is something that Nazis and magicians love, like they love hollow earth, UFO cults, extreme music subcultures. They love these things because they can use them for their own ends. I think there's something about any concept that requires you to make a huge mental leap, like flat earth, hollow earth, UFOs. Not, I'm not equating, you know, being interested in UFOs with some of that stuff, but like, the point is, when there's something involving a jump in logic like that, I think that a lot of times these, or like breakaway civilizations, I think that there is a thing that happens where you become more susceptible to other extreme wild beliefs. I think that that's what cults use, and I think that that's a reason why Nazis are always interested in these crazy mindfuck ideas. And I'll say, like, I'm not trying to start any beef. Like, I watched Hellier, you know, it's fun, but, like, be careful with it, people. Like, think long and hard about whether you want to try and invoke Pan before you do it. Think about the possibility that perhaps people know about things and that the spiritual journey that they depict might perhaps not be genuine, right? Be aware that there are many different forces and factions and that synchromysticism is just one other thing that they can manipulate. Like, don't get lost huffing your own farts. Don't get lost in the James Shelby Downard labyrinth. I was talking to a guy named Keith Allen Dennis, who's done some really cool work about, like, the World Anti-Communist League, a lot of that stuff. We were talking about James Shelby Downard and how <laughs> ridiculously full of shit he is. Don't get lost in the James Shelby Downard labyrinth. It's fun, but it's not true. Like, it's, it's bullshit. The world, and I mean the real world, is very strange and beautiful, and it's endlessly interesting. But don't forget that we can study and plot out actual real-world conspiracies that are grounded in fact and reality, not fantasies. Don't get lost in the labyrinth. For sources today, of course, I used the Kingkill 33 essay and the auto autobiography, quote-unquote, The Carnivals of Life and Death by James Shelby Downard. I used the extremely good article by Professor Richard B. Spence in Paranoia Magazine entitled Searching for James Shelby Downard. I used Cosmic Trigger by Robert Anton Wilson. And a whole host of articles about William Grimstad and Michael A. Hoffman II. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Check out my Patreon, where I do a lot of content quite similar to this. It's not always 12-part series on German steel companies, right? I think if you like this, you'll probably like what I do on Patreon. Now, I need to head out. I'm on my way to the Hakone Mountains in Japan. See you next episode, and God bless. This for the soldiers that see the sun at midnight. You dig? Let me slow down. It's so incredible. I go to the grave before I be a bitch nigga. Better behave, you dealing with some rich niggas. We the law symbol speaking cryptic codes. Ancient wisdom, valuable like gifts of gold. I embark on life, my path is all math. I understand the codes these hackers can't crack. I understand the folks expect me to fold. Community control to violate parole. 
I won't fail, but a lot of men will I'm iconic in the field like Solomon's seal uh, It's just the intro Allow my flow time to sink into the tempo Freemason, freelancer, free agents We faster, big contracts, big contractors Built pyramids, period, we masters No caterpillars, it was just a lot of niggas A lot of great thinkers and a lot of great inventors All white mansion, I'm the child of God all black diamonds, times were hard New Rolls Royce, guess you made it, nigga All white neighborhoods, you they favorite, nigga My top back like JFK They wanna push my top back like JFK So, so I JFK Joined forces with the kings and we ate all day Right now I can rewrite history I stop writing, so fuck it, I'm doing mentally I go to the grave before I be a bitch, nigga Better behave, you dealing with some rich niggas Started in the ghetto, now we worldwide Multiplying and I pray to God we never die I go to the grave before I be a bitch, nigga Better behave, you dealing with some rich niggas Started in the ghetto, now we worldwide Multiplying and I pray to God we never die Niggas couldn't do nothing with me, they put the devil on me how to prefer niggas to squeeze the metal on me Rumors of Lucifer, I don't know who to trust Whole world want my demise, turn the music up Hear me clearly, if y'all niggas fear me Just say y'all fear me Fuck all these fairy tales Go to hell, this is God engineering This is a hell Mary pass, y'all interfering He without sin shall cast the first stone So y'all look in the mirror, double check y'all parents Bitch, I said I was amazing not that I'm a mason, it's amazing that I made it through the maze that I was in Lord forgive me, I never would have made it without sin Holy water, my face in the basin Diamonds in my rose, if he shows he forgave him Bitch, I'm red hot I'm on my third six, but a devil I'm not My Jesus peace flooded, but thou should not cover Keep your eyes on my covet, I'm a bad motherfucker's hope Just say you love it. I go to the grave before I be a bitch nigga Better behave, you dealing with some rich niggas Started in the ghetto, now we worldwide Multiplying and I pray to God we never die I go to the 